this seems a very opportune time to preach on the doctrine of hell. This is the hottest day that I, <laughs> I have ever stood in this pulpit. 113, 114 degrees is supposed to be here in Portland, Oregon. What madness is this? Uh, when I was a kid in 1979 or 80 or so, it was either just before or after, or maybe the year of the eruption of Mount St. Helens, there was this crazy heat wave, and I lived out in Astoria, and it was, it was over 100 degrees in Astoria. So I have no idea how hot it was here, but when it's 100 degrees in Astoria, it's hot in the Pacific Northwest. Now, I remember that distinctly because we did not have air conditioning. And so that stands out in my young mind as a, a pivotal experience trying to stay cool. And, and that was back in the realm of, you know, those black fans that were, you know, weighed about 200 pounds and made all these rattling noises as they went back and forth and didn't put out a lot of air and black and white television and stuff. <laughs> Pre-internet, there was no such thing. Pre-cell phone, the whole nother world. And air conditioning was not a universal experience and blessing in America just yet. Even in cars. Our cars did not have air conditioning. My parents didn't see fit to buy those luxuries. So we're blessed to be here in air conditioning. Praise God for that. But at any moment, that blessing could be gone. And and I'm deadly serious. Uh, There are people taking control of our nation who don't think you deserve air conditioning. Just look to the state of California and the brownouts. Now, the brownouts are starting in Texas, of all places, where energy is abundant, or at least should be. But there's a conspiracy, ultimately, to subjugate America, to make it a second, third world nation, to lower us down to the, the realm of the rest of the world. And, and if God wills it, so be it. But I just want to encourage you to praise God for this little blessing called air conditioning that we have enjoyed now these, these last decades, but can be gone tomorrow or next year or the year after, they decide you don't deserve that, and that, that was a, a white privilege or something, and, and so now we've got to revoke it. Because the African continent doesn't have air conditioning, don't you know? Most of the Asian world doesn't have air conditioning. And so in this global society, we, we've got to humble America and make it less great. That's probably next week's sermon, so I'll stop. <laughs> I'll stop. It's funny how these little things, right, connect to everything. Just be thankful, but don't be dependent on it. For most of the history of the world, people got really hot and people got really cold, depending on what time of the year it was. And that was normal. And you can survive it. (laughs) So praise God for the comforts. Let's pray and open the Word of God together. Father, we do thank you that we can gather this Lord's Day to sing your praises. And what joy it was to sing those hymns and those choruses. I pray, Father, for my newborn grandson, little Roger, that he would grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord. And from a young age, confess Jesus Christ as his Lord and King and serve him and magnify him all his life. And may you bless his mommy and daddy. And Lord, may you grant them a zeal to that end, that they would raise up godly offspring for your glory. And Father, I I just thank you for all these dear saints, these precious brothers and sisters, and some that are no doubt yet to be brothers and sisters that need to come to repentance and faith. And, And so, Lord, I pray for each one that the Word would have its way in every heart, that, Father, as we consider this vital topic, this terrifying topic today, that you, Father, would grant us a fresh fear of God that is so very healthy for us, a fresh zeal to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling, and a fresh zeal to seek the salvation of perishing sinners all around us, who are outside of your grace and mercy in Christ, and who must repent and believe upon Jesus, or they will perish forever under your wrath. I pray this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Open your Bibles, please, to Psalm chapter 9, verse 17, and that will be our primary text, but we will be looking at many others. Psalm 9, verse 17. The the title of this sermon is not a joke. It makes a point. The title of the sermon is Hot as Hell. Hot as Hell. And there will no doubt be people saying that today prolifically. And why do they say that? They say that not as an expletive, just so you know. Not that you should be saying it, and I certainly don't say it. But it's not an expletive. It's a comparative term. It's comparison, hot as hell. But the point of that title is that that statement, while it's still being used, and you'll still hear it very likely today, it's no longer believed. And it's an 
open door for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Every time you hear that, I challenge you, grab onto it and don't let go until you've warned them that hell is indeed hot. I'm so glad you brought that up, my friend. Hell is indeed hot. And praise God, there's a Savior from the fires of hell, Jesus Christ. If that's all you say to them, you've said a lot. Speak the truth with love. That is an open door for the gospel of Jesus Christ. But hear me, it's no longer believed. It's a statement that came out of a biblical worldview that once prevailed in our land. Again, not a statement that I think should be used, but nevertheless, it's a statement that came out of a biblical worldview that prevailed in the United States of America, hot as hell. A comparison to perhaps the engine room on a U.S. Navy ship, which I've spent just a bit of time in, and I pity those sailors who spent much time down in there. I will say that my birthing area where I lived on ship, if you're not familiar with that term, where I lived, where I tried to sleep, was just above the engine room on the ship. And when it got really hot in the Middle East, in the Gulf, they would open up all the hatches, lest they die down there, which meant all that heat came up into my birthing area where I was supposed to sleep. And what I did was lay in a puddle of sweat uh, night after night. Uh, What I did was try to write letters to my wife, but I had so much sweat dripping off, it was impossible. The the paper would be saturated. Uh, What I did was suffer for months on end and was glad to get off ship to go into the Gulf, glad to get off ship to go into Somalia, glad to get off ship to go into Jordan and Iraq. Um, you know it's hot when you put chocolate chip cookies that your wife sends you so lovingly through the mail in the air conditioning duct on ship and they are still utterly melted (laughs) and probably a hundred and some degrees in the air conditioning duct. That's hot. And those kind of terms are used in those kind of environments. Hot as hell. But hear me, that's a blasphemy of hell. That's a lie. And you need to know that. When you hear that term, jump on it. It's an open door for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Say, actually, that's not true. It's not hot as hell. Not at all. But as long as you think it's really hot and you're uncomfortable, let's talk about how uncomfortable hell would be. And that's what we're going to do today. One, we're going to talk about how tragic it is that our nation as a whole no longer believes in the hotness of hell. How Terrifying, truly it is, that the evangelical church no longer believes in the hotness of hell. They no longer believe in the wrath of God. They have jettisoned it, not just from polite conversation, not just from you know, proper pulpiteering, but they have jettisoned it with writing. They have jettisoned it with sermons. They have jettisoned it with whole teaching series with sights set firmly on hell so as to destroy it. And this is not something that happens in some remote place. It's something that takes place right here in Portland. We're in one of the epicenters of the so-called evangelical church's assault on hell. Western Seminary is an epicenter of the evangelical church's assault on hell. The Bible Project is a Portland-based ministry. It's a high-speed internet ministry. It's, it's slick. It's savvy. And it's evil. And it has set its sights on hell, seeking to destroy it. Tim Mackey is a professor at the Western Seminary. And he is at the helm of the Bible Project based out of Portland. He openly mocks the doctrine of hell and the penal substitutionary atonement of Christ. He will not let God pour out his wrath upon sinners in hell, or at least he thinks he won't, nor will he let God pour out his wrath upon his son on the cross on behalf of all those who will be saved from the fires of hell. Tim Mackey, professor at Western Seminary, head of the Bible Project out of Portland, is a heretic. He's a wolf in sheep's clothing. He's an enemy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He is an anti- Christ. Tim Mackey, in general, so you know, says things like this, that hell is not the wrath of God poured upon sinners, that hell is not hot, 
The term hot as hell is just ridiculous. It's completely inaccurate. In fact, he would say that the term hot as hell is a blasphemy of God, not a blasphemy of hell. It's a blasphemy of God. The idea that God would pour out his judgment, his wrath upon sinners in a lake of fire is blasphemy of God. So says Tim Mackey. Tim Mackey says what hell really is, is sinners having their way. Sinners escaping from God. That's what hell really is. And hell is not locked from the outside by God who has cast sinners into hell. Hell is locked from the inside, sinners locking God out. That's hell, according to Tim Mackey. A few quotes. What hell is and how it fits into the story of the Bible itself is complex and needs a lot of reframing from our modern distortions of it. And he is slick are modern distortions. What he really means is the historic, biblical doctrine of hell. He calls our modern distortions. What? You mean what the church has believed for 2,000 years? You mean what Judaism believed before that? That's the modern distortion? No. No, that's a, a little bit of sleight of hand. He goes on. If you're familiar with the story, how it works, hell or evil or sin, the various names it's called in the Bible. Did you catch that? Again, more sleight of hand. Hell or evil or sin. That's his basic premise. That hell is evil is sin. That These are synonyms. Hell is not a place where God pours his judgment. In fact, he attacks that even. Hell is not a place. Hell is not a place where God pours his judgment upon sinners. Hell is sin is evil. And Jesus did not come to save us from the wrath of God in hell. Jesus came to save us from hell in us. He came to drive the hell out of us, he says, literally, instead of to save us from hell. Which you can see how he ends up from his doctrine of hell at the cross. He ends up not just assaulting hell, but assaulting the cross of Jesus Christ, the atonement of Jesus Christ. I mentioned a term earlier, penal substitutionary atonement. Penal has to do with what? Judgment. Penal institution. Prison system, right? Judgment, suffering, paying the penalty, penal substitutionary, that Christ came to pay our debt. Penal substitutionary atonement, that he atoned for our sins through his shed blood. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. Why? Because the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I've given it to you upon the altar, Leviticus 17, to make atonement for your sins, says the Lord. The wage of sin is death, and the life of the flesh is in the blood. Therefore Christ came, and his blood was shed. His righteous, holy blood was shed to wash away our sins. So Tim Mackey doesn't stop at the doctrine of hell. He goes on to the atonement, but a little more about his assault on hell. He says God didn't make whatever hell is. God didn't make it. It's nowhere to be found on one page of your Bible, what God made is heaven and earth. And what does God think about it? It's very good. It's very good. So whatever hell is, it comes into the story later. So God didn't make hell, he says. He goes on to say, if you're familiar with the story, how it works, hell or evil or sin, the various names it's called in the Bible, is something that humans have created by our decision to seize autonomy from God. Well, that's a polite way to say rebel and sin. Now, how do I know that hell is an appropriate word to talk about? Jesus' brother, Jesus' brother wrote a letter that's in the Bible, right? And James says this, it's flabbergasting. He says, when humans do that with their tongues, he says, their tongues are lit on fire by hell. Are you with me? Now, what are the implications of that? The implication is that hell isn't just something about like the end of the game. Hell is a reality that is present now And so he goes from James saying that, that when we speak evil, that it's our tongue being lit with the fire of hell, using that obscure text to deny the reality of hell, the, the clear and obvious overwhelming text that speak about a very real place of eternal wrath and judgment. And so because James likens the slanderous, blasphemous tongue as being lit on fire with the fire of hell, hell clearly isn't literal, despite the the vast volume of biblical text that speaks about a literal hell, a literal lake of fire, a literal conscious suffering. 
day and night, forever. He says this in his teaching, Exploring My Strange Bible, quote, God is holy and he is perfect, you're not, so God has to kill you. He's mocking. God is holy and he's perfect, you're not, so God has to kill you. He needs his pound of flesh in the name of his justice, so he's going to kill you because he's angry at you. But instead, he's going to kill Jesus. And he takes out his anger on Jesus, and then he allows you, when you die, to go to a good place and not the bad place, so you can sing forever the praise of God who didn't kill you. The man is a mocker and a blasphemer, and one of the influential professors at Western Seminary. He goes on to say, I'm creating a caricature, but for some of us, you might think that, yeah, isn't that the story of Christianity? Isn't that what Christians believe? And he goes on to teach for hours upon end, that no, that's not Christianity. That's not what Christians believe. And of course, in one sense, that's, that's not the way he presented it in his mocking expression of his hatred of God. The man is an atheist. He's not a Christian. He hates God. He's opposed to God. He's an antichrist. And he's training up pastors and missionaries. It's evil. It's tragic. And so he would say, hot as hell is a blasphemy of God where biblical Christians would say it's a blasphemy of hell. Psalm 9, verse 17 says this, The wicked shall be turned into hell and all the nations that forget God. Now, I could have preached this next week, but here we are. The wicked shall be turned into hell and all the nations that forget God. So individually, the wicked shall be turned into hell and corporately, all nations that forget God shall be cast into hell. And our nation is in great danger of that corporate reality. Let's break this down. The wicked. The wicked. These are not creative sermon points. I think there are three, because there has to be three, right? Typically, three points in a poem, no poem today. The wicked. The wicked. Romans 3.9 says that you and I and every other man and woman and child, newborn or otherwise, are the wicked. Romans 3, 9 through 12, what then are we better than they? Not at all, for we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. We're all under sin. We're all beneath it. We're all the wicked. We're born dead in sin and trespass. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good. No, not one. That's not just a wee bit wicked. That is thoroughly wicked. That is radically wicked. That is totally wicked, but not in the cool sense. Total depravity. Total depravity. Totally wicked. Through and through. Every deed we do, even the seemingly good deeds, are tainted with wickedness. They're tainted with evil. There is nothing that we bring to God that would merit His mercy. Or his grace. It is unmerited. It's all of Christ and his finished work. We must, we must join God and repudiate the works of our hands and look to the hands of Jesus Christ the pierced hands, the pierced feet, the shed blood, the death of Christ is our only hope, the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ and his finished work alone. His to tell us die alone. It is finished. That's our only hope. That's our only hope. Because we are radically corrupted. We're under sin. We're dead under it. Ephesians 2 would say we're dead under it. There is none righteous, none who understands, none who seeks after God. All have turned aside. They have together become unprofitable, utterly unprofitable in all things righteous. There is none who does good, no, not one. None who do good. We don't do good. Now, comparatively, yes, there are some things better than others. But outside of Jesus Christ, you have never done a good thing, a truly good thing before a holy God. Not until you're born again from above, not until you're indwelt with the Spirit of God, do you truly do something good that is pleasing to God. And that's the power of the Spirit of God living within you. Because all that is not of faith, all that is not for the glory of God is sin. And so we, my friends, are the wicked. All of mankind are the wicked. 
Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. How, or excuse me, who can know it? The heart is deceitful above all things. Deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? And the Lord says, I, the Lord, search the heart. The heart, deceitful and not a wee bit wicked, not touched with a taint of sin, but desperately wicked, desperately wicked. And years ago, I've told you before, but years ago, there were folks in the congregation who are no longer here now. I wish they were. I wish they'd repented. But they would hear that kind of truth from Scripture, and they were offended. They were offended because they had not yet repented. They had not seen themselves in the mirror of God's Word, and they didn't want to see in the mirror of God's Word. Uh Uh-uh. No. You know, I'll accept a Jesus that's here to clean up, you know, a few of my bad days or whatever, but don't you tell me my heart is desperately wicked. Don't you tell me my grandkids' hearts are desperately wicked. Don't you tell me my daughter or son's heart is desperately wicked. Well, I'm not. I'm not telling you that. God is. God is. And I'm simply his messenger. Desperately wicked. Which is why we desperately need the Savior, who is utterly righteous, holy and completely and absolutely righteous. And our only hope is that his righteousness would be imputed to us by grace alone, through faith alone. Exodus chapter 20, of course, the law of God. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make any graven images, nor bow down to them, nor serve them. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. You shall honor your father and mother. You shall not murder. You shall not uh, steal. Uh, You shall not excuse me, commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet. We have broken those commandments, each and every one of us, in a multitude of ways. The Lord Jesus applies several of them. Let's just look at two of his applications. He takes them to a higher level. He says, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. But I send you, he who is angry with his brother without a cause is guilty. And he who is says, Rakah, meaning you fool, is in danger of hellfire. Oh, just, you fool! Hating your brother like that, you're in danger of hellfire. He, he says, uh, regarding adultery, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you should not commit adultery, but I see who looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Better to pluck out your eye than what? Go to hell with both eyes intact. And so the Lord Jesus takes the law of God. He doesn't diminish it. He raises it up. He applies it on a spiritual level, a heart level, the heart deceitful of all things and desperately wicked. And then he goes directly to hell and says, unless you repent, right? Radical repentance. He doesn't want you to pluck out your eyes or cut off your hands elsewhere where he says better to cut off your hand than to go to hell. But he wants you to repent. He wants us to repent, confess him as Lord and follow him, follow him as such. He deals with sin my, my favorite preacher ever talked about sin more than anyone, preached about sin more than anyone. It's not John Calvin or Martin Luther or John MacArthur. It's Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ preached about hell more than anyone else. Why? Because he came to save sinners from a very real, eternal, fiery condemnation. And because he will either save you or he will condemn you. He will say, go from me, I never knew you. Jesus is Lord. He is God. He is King. That's who he is. Savior is a job. Now, it's also an identity, but it's a job. Judge is a job. But hear me, it's not a job we often Think about Jesus doing, but Jesus is the Savior and he is the judge. And it's not an identity that we ever ascribe to Jesus. We never hear judge being used as a name for Jesus. But Jesus is the Savior and he is the judge and he saves with zeal and he will judge with zeal. He will judge with zeal. As Second Thessalonians says, he will return with fiery vengeance 
for all those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of Jesus Christ. Obey it. Not just, oh, yeah, gospel, yeah, sure, whatever. Obey it. This thing rules them. This thing matters to them because Christ is their Lord. And so why preach about hell, a real hell, and the connection of sin and hell and the need for sinners to radically repent? I mean, who spoke about radical repentance and warned sinners of hell in scarier terms than Jesus, right? Better to pluck out your eye, better to cut off your hand, better to cut off a leg? That's Jesus. Better to do that than to go to hell. Now, don't cut anything off or pluck anything out, but repent and confess Christ is Lord. Believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, and you shall be saved, because if you'll not repent, you will most certainly abide under the wrath of God, Jesus, the judge, forever. As lawbreakers, as sinners, with not a wee bit of sin, but a heart that is desperately wicked and deceitful above all things. In Revelation 21, verse 8, it says, But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. I preach this every time, to my knowledge, every time I go out on the streets. Every time. Because everyone I'm talking to, everyone I'm preaching to, they're in that list in multiple places. And I want them to be warned that they must repent, that their destiny is certain. Most people are like I was before I was saved. One, there is no God. Two, if there is a God, hedge my bets. I'm not so bad. You know, on the scales, you know, surely my good deeds outweigh the bad. You know, I'll be okay. No, your heart is desperately wicked. You've done no good thing. And worse, you're in a list, a list of those who are already damned. You're a liar. You're sexually immoral. You're a drunkard. It's all there. It's all there. And you're stepping on everyone's toes. Everyone's in that list in several places or all of them. And so I preach it regularly. Why? Because I want them to go to hell? Because I want them to think I hate them? No, because I love them and I want them to go to heaven. I want them to repent, confess Christ as Lord and be saved from the lake of fire, from the second death. So I warn them. Because all those who do not repent and confess Christ as Lord will be in hell. I made a list of those who will be in hell some years ago when I preached on the doctrine of hell at a Church camp out, sermon after sermon. Here's that list. There will be children in hell. That's terrifying, mother, father, grandfather, grandmother. There will be children in hell. At what age are children accountable? I don't know, but I know this. It's not 18. I do know that. And so labor for your children's souls. Labor for your grandchildren's souls. There will be children in hell because they're sinners and they consciously sin against a holy God. And they are wiser for evil than you think. And if any of you will be honest, you can remember back being very wise for evil yourself at a very young age. How tragic. The things that came forth from our mouths at a very young age, the things that we did from a very young age as sinners before a holy God, with hearts deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. How willing we were to lie to mother and father to cover up all sorts of other sin. How tragic. Children will be in hell. Grandchildren, brothers, sisters, cousins, playmates. Children will be in hell. Your friends' children will be in hell if they die outside of the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Evangelize them. Speak to their parents about their children's precious souls. Life is fragile and brief. Children go to hell. 18 is not the magic age. I don't know that 16 is the magic age. I'd be very doubtful that 14 is the magic age. When are children accountable? I don't know. 
I know this, it's likely sooner than we'd like to think. Now, I could preach a whole sermon about the accountability of children and the various views of that. I'm not going to, but I will say this. Children will be in hell because God is a just judge, and he rightly sends them there because they're born in sin and iniquity, and they act on it from a very young age. Which, by the way, should give you parents zeal to discipline your children and raise them up as godly offspring. What mom and dad speak is law. When they violate it, there need to be consequences because you love the child. Biblical consequences, because you love the child. Love them biblically, not according to Dr. Spock, not according to James Dobson. Love them biblically because the Word of God says exactly what you should do if you love their souls. If you hate their souls, it tells you that too. And that's a whole other sermon. I spared you fathers this year. Next year, I'm after you. Love your children's souls. Don't hate them. And the Bible speaks to that issue quite explicitly. Children will be in hell. Teenagers will be in hell. The cool, the hip, the quiet, the reserved, the promising young men and women going someplace. Dead in a multitude of ways and in hell. Fresh out of college, going places, life just getting started. Dead. And in hell. Freshly promoted. New career. Just saving a little bit. Just bought that first new car. Dead and in hell. One fun night. That's it. You know these kids. You know them. They're in your life. They're your relatives. They're your friends. They're your neighbors. They're on the way to hell. And they're a breath away and they act foolish all the time. They throw their lives away all the time. Go out to the gorge and mar- march up and down those trails, and you'll find little signs that say, Johnny died here. Billy died here. Timmy died here. And they're usually somewhere between 10 years old and 23 because they didn't take that cliff serious. And they're dead. And most of them are likely in hell, since the way to hell is broad, and many go thereby. And the way of life is narrow, and few shall find it. Love your neighbors. The vast majority of them are dead in sin and trespass, and their lives are fragile and brief. Twenty-somethings will be in hell. Thirty-somethings will be in hell. New house, young growing family, breast cancer. Dead and in hell. Forty-somethings will be in hell. Enjoying the prime of life. Well invested. Got a whole Bitcoin to their name. They're going places. Moving up the career ladder. Children entering college. They're just starting to look toward that empty nest and, and glad for it. Killed by a drunk driver and in hell. I, I mean, there's virtually no city of any size where you couldn't find in the daily paper, a story just like that. Fifty-somethings will be in hell, looking forward to retirement, grandchildren, heart attack, death, and hell. Never got to spend that retirement. They worked so hard to save up. Never got to play with those grandkids while they were working so hard to save up retirement to play with them. Your neighbors, your friends, your brothers, your sisters... Your parents, perhaps. Sixty-somethings will be in hell, freshly retired, new RV, a stroke, a fall in the hospital, death, and hell. And I just described someone in my extended family. Sixty-somethings, freshly retired, new RV, a stroke, a fall in the hospital, Death and hell. Thought they had escaped death. Had a stroke. Not so bad. Lived through it. It's okay. Recovered in the hospital. Got out of bed. Fell down. Hit her head. And died. 70-somethings. 80-somethings. And every other something beyond that. The vast majority will be in hell. Old. Too tired for much sin these days. Death approaches. Their friends are dying or dead. 
They know that they are dying too. And yet when it comes, it's always a shock. And then eternity in hell. How tragic. It just saddens me so much to see elderly people whose lives are ebbing away, often on multiple drugs, trying to keep them alive to suppress multiple symptoms of multiple diseases, heart disease, diabetes, whatever, kidney failure. And yet they will not repent. They will not confess Christ as Lord. Their friends are dying around them. They're dying. And they continue in their sin. They continue to blaspheme God. How tragic. What's even more tragic in some ways is that their Christian friends won't speak to them in love, won't plead with them to flee from the wrath to come because hell's not so hot anymore. Because hot is hell if we say it at all, which we shouldn't as Christians, in a flippant sense, is no longer believed. It's just a nonsense term. It used to have some basis in reality in a nation that held to a biblical worldview. But now it's mythological. Now it's the stuff of Nike commercials. I say this with the utmost sensitivity, but it must be said, your dead relatives and my own did not all go to heaven when they died. You cannot afford to act like they did. Your living relatives cannot afford for you to act like they did. Do not deny the gospel when those near to your heart die. This is a comfort that will send the living to hell. If they were not clearly repentant of following Jesus Christ as Lord, do not, I can't stress this strongly enough, do not say, they're in heaven now. Now you can say, my hope is they repented and there was some evidence of that and confessed Jesus Christ as Lord. And if so, they're in heaven. And I hold to that hope. But if there's not clear evidence of repentance and faith in Christ, don't go telling all your unregenerate, unsaved, God-hating relatives and friends, they're in heaven now. They know how they lived. They never heard the name of Jesus Christ from their lips, and they saw plenty of sin in their life that would not testify that Christ was their Lord. And you tell them they're in heaven now with certitude. You are damaging their souls, hardening their hearts. that They too can continue to live godless lives, sinful lives not confessing Jesus Christ with deed or word, and that they too will go to heaven. Do not say when they cease to struggle with the pain of cancer or the pain of severe arthritis or pain and suffering after an auto accident, do not say at least they aren't suffering anymore unless there is reason to, born out of the word of God. To do so is to hate the living. And we can't throw grace to the dead. We can be messengers of grace to the living. But we cannot throw grace to the dead and try to pull them out of their eternal damnation. May we be sound in our theology at those pivotal moments above all others If we have to be silent, then let us be silent. But if we speak, let us speak truth with love. Even in the worst of circumstances, and I've had to preach funerals like this, and it's difficult. Here's what Johnny would want you to know. I'm not saying Johnny's in hell. All his friends and loved ones are here. But here's what Johnny would want you to know right now. And then to warn them of judgment, to warn them that Jesus Christ is the only Savior, to call them to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. And they can do the math regarding Johnny. But I'm not going to tell them Johnny's in a better place, or at least Johnny's not suffering now. Why? Because my allegiance is to Jesus Christ and his gospel and to love the living, that they might be rescued through Jesus Christ and his gospel from eternal hell. The wicked. All men, women, and children outside of repentance and faith in Jesus Christ, outside of being born again, are the wicked. And they will be the damned unless they repent and confess Christ as Lord. Oh, let us love them and warn them. The wicked, 
shall be turned into hell. Second point, shall be turned into hell. They shall be turned into hell. It is certain. It is not a question. It is not a debate. It is not a second chance. They shall be turned into hell. If you die in the status of the wicked, you shall be turned into hell. There is no purgatory. There is only the eternal wrath of God. It's sober, it's terrifying, it's uncomfortable, but it's real. And so we need to deal with it. We need to deal with it. They shall be turned into hell. Matthew 25, 41, Jesus, my favorite preacher, Matthew 25, 41, Jesus speaking. Then he will also say to those on the left hand, depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. That's Jesus, he warns the wicked that what they're going to hear unless they repent and come to him in faith is depart from me, you cursed. The wicked, the cursed, the damned, all the same individuals. Depart from me, you cursed, into everlasting fire. Everlasting fire. Hot as hell. Everlasting fire. Yes, it's real. It's real. Everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. It will be where the devil is. There are those today that maybe call themselves atheists, but like myself, when I call myself an atheist, hedge their bets, and if there's a God, well, yeah, surely the devil's going to go to hell. Hitler, he'll go to hell. Probably Stalin. Marx, nah, he had a good idea. You know, people just misused it. But yeah, you know, the Jeffrey Dahmers, they'll go to hell. If there's a hell. Now, the wicked shall be turned into hell. The cursed shall be turned into hell. All those who have not repented and confessed Christ as Lord will be cast into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. It's not just the devil and the demons that will be in hell. It's all of the wicked, all of the Romans 3, 9 folk, which is every man, woman, and child outside of repentance and faith in Christ. They'll be with the devil in hell. Now, because God is a just judge, God meets out judgment justly. There are hotter spots in hell. There's no good spot in hell. There are worse spots in hell. They will receive the due penalty of their sin. No good place in hell. But there are worse places. Because God is a just judge. Depart from me, you cursed, into everlasting fire. Prepare for the devil and his angels. The Lord Jesus, the judge, will pass his certain and most holy judgment, saying, depart, get thee away from me. He has no part of you. He has no mercy for you. He has no patience for you. He is the only advocate, and you rejected his advocacy. He is the only mediator, and you rejected his mediation. He's the only expression of the Father's saving love, and you rejected the love of God in Jesus, his Son. There's nothing left to say to you except depart, you cursed. You are the cursed. Your sins have damned you into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil himself and his demons. You're among the wicked and shall have the end of the wicked. You shall be turned into the same fiery hell as the devil himself. Oh, that's terrifying. Well, if you're outside of Christ, repent. Flee to Christ. Don't be flippant with your precious soul today. Those around you that you know to be outside of Christ, don't be flippant with their souls. They need you to testify of Christ. If you value your friendship or your happy-go-lucky relationship with them over the value of their soul and the glory of God in their redeemed soul, then you're hating God and them. Well, repent of that. And we've all been there. We all need to repent of that. And we'll be there again, tragically, and we'll need to repent of that again. Our greatest sin is our self-love that shuts our mouths where we won't warn sinners of the coming judgment of God and we won't tell them of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ that would save them. That is our great, great sin to be ashamed of Christ and His gospel. The wicked shall be turned into hell. Revelation 19 verse 20 says, Then the beast was captured and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his 
image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone. You, outside of Christ, your friends outside of Christ, your family members outside of Christ shall be cast alive into the lake of fire with the beast and the false prophet. It's the same end. Cast alive, literal conscious torment. There's no soul sleep. There's no annihilation. And the heretics that are the elders downtown at Imago Day that ascribe to men's teaching like that of Tim Mackey, they're helping damn souls as they deny the reality of eternal conscious torment. Years ago, I was preaching the gospel in downtown Portland in Pioneer Square, and this group came up to me, and, and they began to mock the warning of hell that I was giving. And I immediately addressed them as Jehovah's Witnesses, of course, right? But they weren't Jehovah's Witnesses. They were good Portland evangelical Christians, probably members of Imago Day, maybe on the staff, I don't know. But they were willing to stand toe-to-toe and contend with that crazy pastor in Pioneer Square who dared to warn sinners to repent lest they go to a literal hell. They, They could not tolerate the warning of a literal hell. They were not blessed that the name of Jesus, the gospel of Jesus was being preached. No, they could not tolerate the warning of a literal hell. And so they went to war with the preacher over that biblical doctrine. That is more and more the case. And as men like Tim Mackey, as heretics like Tim Mackey, find themselves in pivotal positions, training ministry leaders, that will be more and more and more and more the case in the years ahead. Unless there's repentance and revival... Revelation 20, verse 15, speaks of being cast into the lake of fire. All those who are not in the book of life shall be cast into the lake of fire. That's biblical reality. Where they'll be tormented day and night forever and ever. That's biblical reality. Jesus, again, in Matthew chapter 5, Matthew chapter 5, verse 27 He says, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you should not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks to a woman to lust for has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye caused you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. For it's more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. Is hell some place that man created and that man's in control of and we lock God out to have autonomy from God, freedom from God? No, hell is a place God casts sinners with the devil, where they will be tormented forever. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you, for it's more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. That's Jesus. That's not some fundamentalist Baptist from Arkansas or Portland. That's Jesus. And if Tim Mackey and Jesus go head to head and there's a disagreement. Well, Jesus is the truth. And Tim Mackey and all his ilk are the liars. Isaiah 51, 17. This is going to go kind of fast. You probably won't be able to turn there. If you want to, that's fine. Isaiah 51, 17. Awake, awake, stand up, O Jerusalem. You have drunk at the hand of the Lord the cup of his fury. You have drunk the dregs of the cup of trembling and drained it out. The cup of God's holy fury is spoken of again and again in the word of God, the cup of God's fury. There's the idea that hell is not God pouring out his wrath upon sinners. It's the absence of God. It's eternal separation from God. That is a lie. Hell is not eternal separation from God. Don't blaspheme hell by saying you'll be eternally separated from God. No, it's eternal separation from the grace, mercy, and love of God. It's the eternal presence of the holy wrath of God. It is the fury of God for sinners. The cup of his fury, the cup of trembling, Isaiah 51.17 says. Isaiah 51.22, thus says your Lord, the Lord and your God, who pleads the cause of his people. See, I have taken out of your hand the cup of trembling and the dregs of the cup of my fury. 
Psalm 11, verse 4, the Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold, his eyelids test the sons of men. The Lord tests the righteous, but the wicked and the one who loves violence, his soul hates. Upon the wicked, he will rain coals, fire and brimstone, and a burning wind shall be the portion of their cup. Upon the wicked, the wicked shall be turned into hell. Psalm 917. Psalm 11, the wicked and the one who loves violence, his soul hates. And upon the wicked, he will rain coals, fire and brimstone, and a burning wind shall be the portion of their cup. And they will drink it to its dregs forever. It will never be emptied. Psalm 75, 6 speaks of the cup of God's holy fury. Psalm 75, 6 For in the hand of the Lord there's a cup, and the wine is red. It is fully mixed, and he pours it out. Surely its dregs shall all the wicked of the earth drain and drink down. The wicked shall be turned into hell. Surely its dregs shall all the wicked of the earth drain and drink down. When I go into Portland, these are the things that are on my mind when I see the debauchery, when I see the rebellion, when I hear the blasphemy, when I hear the hail Satans, these are the things that are on my mind. I pity them. They're perishing in their sins. They're slaves of the devil himself and being drugged down to hell with the devil, caught up in his lies and perpetuating them. Isaiah 51, 17, once again, Awake, awake, stand up, O Jerusalem. You who have drunk at the hand of the Lord, the cup of his fury, you have drunk the dregs of the cup of trembling and drained it out. Drained it out. Justice will be satisfied. Jeremiah 25, 15, For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Take this wine of the cup of fury from my hand and cause all the nations to whom I send you to drink it, and they will drink. Again, the wicked shall be turned into hell and all the nations that forget God. Jeremiah 25, 27, Therefore you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Drink, be drunk, and vomit, fall, and rise no more because of the sword which I will send among you. And it shall be if they refuse to take the cup from your hand to drink, then you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord of hosts, You shall certainly drink. America, if it will not repent, will drink the cup of God's wrath the cup of his fury. The wicked individually shall be turned into hell and all the nations that forget God. Verse 30, Therefore prophesy against them. This is Jeremiah 25, 30. Therefore prophesy against them all these words and say to them, the Lord will roar from on high. The Lord is not ashamed of his judgment. He's not ashamed of his wrath. When heretics like Tim Mackey say, oh, the the idea that hell is eternal suffering, blasphemes God. All through the Bible, you see God utterly unashamed of bringing judgment upon sinners. When men are ashamed of a God who brings judgment upon sinners, those men are unbelievers. That's what you call them, unbelievers. They don't believe in God. They assault the Word of God. They assault the God of the Word. They know nothing of holiness. They know nothing of the cross. They repudiate the cross. They deny it. The Lord will roar from on high and utter his voice from his holy habitation. He will roar mightily against his fold. He will give a shout to those who tread the grapes against all the inhabitants of the earth. A noise will come to the ends of the earth for the Lord has a controversy with the nations. He will plead his case with all flesh. Have we not read Revelation? God is holy. And at his appointed time, his patience with sin and sinners will end. And judgment will come. Revelation 14.10 He shall also drink the wine of the wrath of God, which has poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. The wine of the wrath of God poured out full strength. That's terrifying. Into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with the fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. Again, I say, eternal separation from God is a lie. In the presence of the holy angels, and in the presence of the Lamb, they shall what? Drink the wine of the wrath of God from the cup of his indignation. Now that's 
Wine and cup, I don't want nothing of. And that's wine and cup, I don't want anyone to have any part of. Which is why, if, if I'm going to be consistent with that statement, I must speak the truth to them. I must warn them and call them to repentance and faith in Christ. Consider this. Jesus, Matthew 20, verse 22. Jesus answered and said, You do not know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? Jesus was going to the cross to drink what cup? The cup of God's holy indignation, full of the wine of his eternal wrath. Because Jesus is eternally God, eternal in nature, and because he took upon himself the nature of mankind, coming in the likeness of men, he could be our substitute in our likeness and yet without sin, and take the eternal wrath of God, drink that eternal cup of fury to its dregs. That's what he did upon the cross. He drank that cup. That's what he prayed about in the garden. That's what he said to Peter in John 18, 11, Jesus said to Peter, put your sword in the sheath. Shall I not drink the cup which my father has given me? In Matthew 26, the Lord Jesus in verse 39, in the garden, fell on his face and prayed, saying, O oh, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. The horror of that cup, the horror of taking the infinite eternal wrath of God for an untold number of sinners on that cross compelled the Lord Jesus in his humanity to pray that prayer. The horror of becoming sin and taking the wage of sin, which is not just physical death, but eternal death and eternal wrath, compelled him to pray that prayer. And yet the love of your precious soul and countless others compelled him to march to that cross nevertheless, not to merely suffer the wounds in his hands and his feet, but to suffer eternal fiery judgment. That's what Christ did for you if you're in Christ today. That's amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Psalm 9, 17. The wicked shall be turned into hell and all the nations that forget God. I could preach a whole sermon on that last point, all the nations that forget God. Let's just say this. It's astonishing. It's astounding. It's incomprehensibly foolish that our culture as a whole has embraced sexual perversion under the name of pride. I'm seeing taglines and banners and things. Pride is everything, it says. Everything. I think that is astonishing. And they're not just talking about pride itself, but perversion. So all this sexual perversion, all this abominable perversion has been titled now with pride. And then the, the slogan, pride is everything. Hear me. If our nation does not come collectively to repentance, if there is not a vast revival our nation is on the precipice of its end. And this air conditioning you're enjoying right now, it's keeping you from the hottest day that I know of here in Portland that will no longer exist. And this nation will be turned over to hell. There will be death. There will be destruction. There will be hardship. Like America has never seen. We're on the precipice of either revival or judgment. We must preach Christ crucified. We must warn our neighbors of eternal judgment and call them to repentance and faith in Christ. For the glory of God in their redemption. For the love of God and for the love of their precious souls. And for the love even of your own dear families. That you might continue to enjoy security and safety and peace and, yes, prosperity. 
Prosperity now is this evil thing because as communism takes a grip both in the world and in the church, prosperity, evil, money, evil. Money buys real medicine. <laughs> money buys good food so you're healthy. Uh, money staves off all sorts of disease and suffering. Money is a blessing from God that you might love your neighbor by printing Bibles and gospel tracts and sending missionaries. All that will go away if our nation is turned over to hell. Oh, that we would come to repentance individually and corporately as a church and preach Christ crucified. Go, therefore, and make disciples and call all the world to repent and believe the gospel because hell is hot still. Let's pray.